0: My guest today is Chris Smedley, who is the CEO of Assure Programs. And uh, Chris has had an amazing career. I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But for those people who are new to the Arate podcast, firstly, let me introduce myself. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the Managing Director of Arate Executive. And we are a Brisbane-based executive search firm. Uh, that service our clients nationally, uh, predominantly headhunting senior executives. We work across industry, we work across role family, we work across geography, and certainly if you have any vacancies in your executive leadership team, I'd love to have the opportunity to have a chat to you about that. I've known Chris Medley for a few years now, and uh, he's had a really interesting career, originally from the UK, Uh, He's worked across a broad range of industries, manufacturing, retail, uh, financial management, health insurance, and now currently the CEO of Assure Programs, which is a national EAP provider, EAP meaning employee assistance programs, where essentially they have teams of psychologists, uh, very experienced psychologists who are there. To support employees of organizations in dealing not only with any workplace related issues, but more holistically in relation to dealing with any issues that employees may have where they want the opportunity to have a confidential discussion with a psychologist and have that paid for by the employer as part of, I suppose, a salary benefit. And uh, the organization has been extraordinarily successful under Chris's leadership most recently for about three years now. uh, They've just won a very exciting major contract, which is going to see the organization go through tremendous growth. Anyway, I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation. So sit back and have a listen to the story of Chris Smedley. Well, hi, Chris, welcome to uh, the Arrate podcast. It's almost Christmas and I understand you're going away on holidays for four weeks tomorrow.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, heading over to Europe, to the UK, where I'm originally from. Yeah. But uh, yeah, trying to get a few things wrapped up before Christmas.
0: Oh, good stuff. So you'll catch up. you got some family over yeah. there? Yeah, and friends. Oh, yeah, right. Mainly friends. Okay. Pubs. Uh, no, uh, that, that's, uh, that's the main thing I miss about right. England. Do you? <laughs> are you a Guinness drinker? Uh,
1: not really. English bitter.
0: Right. Real okay. beer. Real okay. beer. Okay. None of this uh, cold, fizzy stuff. <laughs> right. It's all uh, warm and flat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Various forms of pond
1: life floating in it.
0: Oh, very good. And then, uh, and then you go into Europe, are you?
1: Yeah, yeah, we're going. Uh, friends of friends of mine have got uh, an apartment up in the mountains in Switzerland, so wow. a bit of skiing should be awesome. very nice. Okay. Yeah.
0: Have you been there before? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you're going with your family? Yep. Yep. All, all keen skiers. Uh,
1: we're not not regular as um, as regular as we'd like. Right. It's hard to regularly ski when you live in Australia, yeah, but occasionally, sure. yeah.
0: Yeah, my kids uh, are now eleven and six, and my daughter, particularly, who's six, has never seen the snow. And, wow. Uh, she, oh. uh, I've told them I'll take them next year and yeah. she's so excited about yeah. building a snowman. She, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, look, um, Chris, maybe just to begin with, uh, just tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm the CEO of a company called Ashore Programs, yeah. which is one of the largest mental health organisations in Australia, okay. specialising in, in workplace mental health. Okay. So most of what we do is employee assistance programs, uh, critical incident and trauma response. Right manager leader support, Um, we do uh, do quite a lot of also what we call organizational development which is more proactive organizational team level programs for development, behavioral change, training awareness, that kind of thing.
0: Because as I understand EAP um, uh, a company pays to have an anonymous system where an employee is having something going on in their life, whether it's personal or professional, and they can ring up and they Mm. can speak to a psychologist and you know, just get some um, uh, clarity about where they're at. But it sounds like you your services are way more uh, yeah, holistic than that. They are more
1: holistic, and uh, and you're absolutely right. The core business is that almost reactive con- uh, um, confidential counselling at a one to one level right. when something has gone wrong, someone's got a, a an issue they're trying to tackle, or something's happened in the organisation that need needs a reactive res- response to right. it. But but yes, you're right. There's there's um, there's a lot more we can do with organisations that's holistic and proactive
0: as well. Okay, yeah. and you joined in 2015. That's right. Yeah. So at that time, were employee assistance programs widespread throughout Australia? Uh,
1: yes, I think that I think Australia Australia is almost the lucky country. I think when it comes to it, might not feel like it, but right. compared to some other societies, certainly certainly the US, which was where EAP originally comes from, we have uh, the, the service offering that uh, that, that organisations and employees in Australia have come to expect is. Probably more substantial and more clinical than okay. what you'll see elsewhere in the world, okay. uh, which I think is a very good thing for, for, for Australians. Um, but uh, EAP is very widespread. Um, what I've seen in the three years that I've um, I've been with Ashore is not so much more more organisations uh, setting up an EAP service because they probably mm. most of them already had it but probably more and more of them taking mental health really seriously at right. a strategic level. Yep. So really understanding the value of a holistic, proactive strategy towards mental health rather okay. than just having a service in place, mm. ticking the box and mm-hmm. moving on. Mm-hmm. Some organisations probably, to be frank, do take a tick-the-box approach, and that's okay. That's every every organisation has its strategic goals and its, its priorities in terms of investment. So that's not a criticism at all, but I'm seeing more organisations really really wanting to invest more time and, and leadership focus in in uh, improving and supporting the mental health of their employees.
0: And what's driven that, do you think?
1: Uh, I think a number of factors. There's, uh, there's, there's increasing awareness and reducing stigma associated with mm-hmm. mental health. We're still not there. There's still, mm-hmm. pl- still plenty of stigma, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I think society as a whole is becoming more expecting of, 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 um, uh, of their employer or, the, or, or government investment supporting mental health. Um, and I think I think we 're probably all becoming more aware of the perhaps the extent of mental health issues in mm-hmm. society. I think those issues p- probably are increasing, but the biggest increase is awareness of the issues mm-hmm. you 've got to sort of make that distinction so I think that 's sort of in, in increasing the demand from employees that they're, that their employer has a good mm-hmm. mental health strategy in place and I think there 's also pressure coming from um, from at board level, chairmen and 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 CEOs who actually demand of their their own leadership teams that we need to have a strategy in place. Mm. So this is a big business risk for us. Mm. You know whether it's absenteeism, present presenteeism, you know people taking time off work for me- mental health issues, whether it's. Mental health issues leading to a lack of productivity or poor behaviours in the workplace because mm. people are struggling with their own their own challenges, whether those challenges are at work or at home. Mm. Either way, they can really take away from the the engagement and productivity of a workforce. Mm. And if you're a leader of organisation, that's a that's a that's a big issue.
0: Sure, I mean I imagine there's all sorts of people way smarter than me uh, who have done or uh, done research to show the actual quantifiable financial. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, aspects of that yep. and is this something that only really large corporate type businesses get involved in or are you working no, with the small we, enterprise as well
1: we have a whole range So we have about 500 customers that range from tens of thousands of, employee, of employees to tens of okay. employees
0: Right.
1: Um, we cover about uh, 400,000 employees mm-hmm. of our customers throughout Australia plus their family members So we cover over a million Australians mm-hmm. now um, and there's a whole range of small, medium, large organisations. Mm-hmm.
0: And I imagine, as an employer of psychologists, the type of way that your solutions are delivered means that your staff uh, could probably work more flexibly than you know in a lot of uh, workplaces. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, that we have a we have a whole range of uh, full time employed, part time, work from home, mm-hmm. uh, contracted, non employed, but sort of contracted what we call associate psychologists whole range of options in terms of what's what the priorities and flexibility is needed by the by the individual
0: okay great so yeah. how how big is the team overall uh
1: so we employ about 110 people so quite okay. a small organization in terms of employees about two-thirds or three-quarters of those are psychologists mm-hmm. we have a network of about another 900 associate psychologists mm-hmm. uh, who are who typically have their own private practices mm-hmm. but do contract work for us around the country that means we can We've got about uh, a dozen of our own offices where our employed sites mm-hmm. operate from, uh, as well as their work from home, um, the work from home sites. But those, those that, that associate network of um, uh, that supports us operate from about another 450 locations around well, Australia. Yeah. So, a lot of our customer organisations have very spread out footprints Mm -hmm. Um, some of them have hundreds or even in a couple of cases over a thousand locations around the country okay so we've got to be in a lot of places to provide that support
0: yeah right okay good well we'll uh, come back and talk more about that uh, a bit later in this conversation but I'm interested in uh, you know going back to where it all began for you uh, tell us a little bit about you know where you were born and your early life
1: yeah so I uh, made reference before that I come from the UK originally, I was actually born in Greece because my, okay. dad, my dad was working, working for Esso at the time and he was an expat out in Greece for a few right. years in the, in the 60s. So I've just, just dated them? myself. <laughs> You're <laughs> amongst good friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, now he was um, uh, actually a tax accountant for ESO. Okay. Um, and uh, so he worked out there there for three years during that was the time when I was born. So right. came back to the UK when I was about two years old. Um, you the and, oldest child? No, younger child, I've got one sister. A right. couple of years older than me, who, okay. still, who still lives in the UK. Right. But, uh, um, so yeah, brought, brought up then in the UK, um, and uh, obviously went through school, university, career, and everything. Found my found my way to Australia eventually.
0: Right. And um, uh, while you're going sort of through schooling and, and university, yeah. do you have any part time jobs?
1: Uh, yeah, I think I probably did the the, the typical sort of school kid slash university jobs right. trying to pay for holidays basically yeah. beer and holidays are probably your priorities right. when you're that age and so i did a, you know, a few sort of building jobs and okay. laboring jobs and you know christmas shift over the over the over the christmas holidays those sorts of things i right. think i Worked at McDonald's in Gatwick Airport in, for for a period of time on night shift. That okay. was probably the most boring job I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <Were you laughs> Laying early? bricks was more fun than that. Were you out
0: the back cooking the burgers? Oh, a bit of both, back? bit right. of both.
1: Sometimes that, sometimes sweeping the floor, okay. sometimes getting yelled at by irate, you know, travellers who have their flights held up. Uh-huh. It's and, all my, uh, it was all it was always my fault, of course. Of course, yeah.
0: uh, you know McDonald's. Uh, have uh, total world domination. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so I um, I looked at your uh, CV, and so your first degree was in engineering. Yes, yeah. Right, what attracted you to that? Uh,
1: interestingly, and probably, you know, parts of my career have probably been planned, and parts of them have been sort of less less planned. It was almost an accidental sort of flow of logic that the, the careers advice that I received at school, and I, and I've sort of come in my later life to sort of question the wisdom of this really, but... The careers advice was, if you could do sciences, if you're good at sciences, then you should go and do a science degree, whether mm. it's pure science or engineering or maths or something like that. If you can't do science, you should go and do a degree in languages or history yeah. or something. Right. Uh, I, I think that that advice was completely wrong. Right. It was very narrow-minded in my opinion, sure. yeah. uh, and I think that uh, I would have I actually, whilst I was, well, I, I could do both, mm. but the logic was if you could do sciences, that's what you should do. Yeah. So I... Sort, yeah. of, sort of followed the advice of you know the, the, the teachers and, and the careers advisors. And actually, I had much more of a passion for history and languages, and I okay. think I would have had more fun at uni if I'd done that sure. doing a subject I actually enjoyed. Yeah, and then, um, you know, it's
0: interesting, uh, as a bit of a segue, although the world has changed so dramatically and younger people are going to live a lot longer, they're going to work mm-hmm. a lot longer, they're going to have a lot of more different careers, fundamentally, that whole uh, thing of go to high school, work out what s- subjects you're good at, Pick your degree; it's still exactly the same. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. maybe. Um, Whether
1: that's right or not, I don't know. I mean, right. I think the, uh, the the notion of sort of vocational degrees probably is very different now from what it was. We're mm. going back, you know, thirty plus years now to when I was sort of going through uni. And uh, Well, you
0: look at your career, um, and I mean, you've never really I've worked never, as an engineer. Never, I've anymore. never used
1: my engineering degree, and and I knew I was actually um, uh, sponsored through university by Philips Electronics. Which oh, yeah. Their their main European research labs was just just down the road from the from where I lived. So. Right. That was a good. They had a good contact with our school, so I managed to get myself a, a year's work with them before I went to uni. So I deferred to, to do that, and then they gave me um, holiday jobs through uni as well. Mm-hmm. So that was nice perk. Obviously, yeah. proper money coming in yeah. as a student. Um, Uh, But I I realised within my first year at uni that I was on the wrong track. I just had no passion for it. I could do it technically, but it wasn't what I enjoyed doing.
0: Yeah. And then Um, you fairly immediately moved into studying accounting.
1: No. Well, again, going back back 30 odd years, I don't know what it was like in Australia then, but in England then, if you wanted to change degree courses, you pretty much had to go and start again. Okay. So I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I knew that engineering wasn't a bad degree for me to get by sure. any means. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, I was going to end up with a good bit of paper at the end of it, but I yeah. wouldn't, wasn't going to have much fun doing it. Um, so I stayed the course, mm-hmm. did, did the degree, but I already knew that I was more interested in getting into business. Right. So that led to the next step, which is, well, an engineering degree is not going to get me into business. So mm-hmm. In those days, it wasn't going to. I think, I think uh, the doors are probably a bit more flexible now than they mm-hmm. were then. Mm-hmm. I looked at senior business leaders um, of that time, and none of them, even even in a company like Philips, which was obviously a, a technical and you know, engineering uh, research company, um, their senior leaders had all come from business and, and business degrees mm. and accounting and MBAs and that sort of thing. They weren't people who'd come up through the ranks of being an engineer or someone technical. Mm. It's almost like it felt like it was a bit of a glass ceiling. If you were, if you were a technical person, that was where you were gonna stay. You mm. might become a senior technical mm. person, but you're never gonna become the CEO. Well, there's um,
0: that whole stigma around engineers being introverted. And, yeah, uh, maybe, uh, maybe. I, I was uh, talking to somebody the other day and he uh, uh, said this joke, how do you know an extroverted engineer because they're looking at your shoes and not their own? <laughs> <laughs> there so, uh, and there, so, were, there were probably a few of those I came across. I can't, right. I can't
1: disagree with that, but um, I, I decided that if I wanted to actually get into a, a, a senior um, sort of Business career that mm. engineering was not going to do it for me back mm-hmm. then. I mean, things may be more flexible now, mm. I, I suspect. But so that's when I went to say, okay, well, like it or not, mainly not. I'm going to have to go and get a business qualification right. post my engineering degree, and I chose mm. to charge accountancy because it was low hanging fruit. You know, the, all the accountancy, the big the big accounting firms all come around the universities doing what they, they in England they call the milk round. They go around mm-hmm. all of them, interviewing everybody, and there's a big intake every year. It's probably much the same now. Um, and I could see there's something I could do and I could actually, you know, start off my sort of business career. I you never had PwC? Any, PwC. Well, in those days it was Pw, Pricewaterhouse. Right. Waterhouse. okay. Um, and I never had any intention of, 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 a, of an accountancy career. So how did Phillips feel? Any more than my engineering career. they right. <laughs> are there saying, oh, we're sponsors yeah. all the way through uni
0: and then the moment comes, he says, oh, thanks, yeah. but no thanks. <laughs> uh, they, weren't, they weren't best
1: pleased, but right. uh, I guess they... They know that that's the risk they take. They yeah. they had a handful of students they sponsored each year, and they probably banked on, you know, some of them staying the course. Right. yeah, I didn't turn out to be a good investment for them, I guess. Oh well. But, and uh, so, uh,
0: Price Waterhouse. us yeah, A little yeah. bit about uh, working for
1: them. Um, I guess I had a lot of fun. It was for this is the first time I was actually working in London as a. You know, young sort of recent graduate with money in my pocket and London's an awesome place to be when you've got no kids and no responsibilities right. and, and uh, free cash flow, probably had more mm-hmm. free cash flow than I will ever have in my life or sure. certainly I have had up till up to now. Um, and uh, so I had a ball, I had a great social life and um, never took the work very seriously. I knew I wasn't going to be there for longer mm-hmm. than it took to get the bit of paper. Um, okay. And I knew I was getting the bit of paper from a very good organisation. You mm-hmm. know, and plus Waterhouse in those days, PWC was mm-hmm. a fantastic brand name to have on my CV. Yeah, it still um, is. So it was, and still is absolutely yeah. And, and and so I'm, you know, I knew I was, I knew, I knew it was the right thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, and so I, I stayed the course, and um, you know, then. Left sort of on on, on on queue on schedule when I right. when I qualified, which I and think most people do probably you know, go off and do other 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 careers, other jobs.
0: Right, and then went to a consumer packaging company. Yeah, yeah. So what attracted you to uh, Rexham?
1: Uh, so Rexham, um, not so much that it was Rexham. I mean, it was a good big multinational organisation. Uh, probably the thing that attracted me was the role, which was corporate strategy and mergers and acquisitions, mm-hmm. which was something that I could I could see could be really interesting and like Mm -hmm. intellectually challenging um and i and and having done the 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 charge accountancy thing i could see that i was now qualified to get into that at the Mm -hmm. you know at the bottom level and um so i was really excited to go and do that and sort of start to actually i guess use a little bit of the accountancy but more more learn about sort of business acumen and you know how how Mm -hmm. big organizations make m&a decisions and make Mm -hmm. strategy decisions and it was a very good learning curve for oh, me. Good.
0: And you were there for about three years. Yeah, yeah. Were you involved in any, you know, really exciting M and M and yeah, period? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. We um, so I, I was um, I was the main analyst working for them who um, did uh, cor- corporate valuations for M and A and then working with uh, our investment bank advisors on how to finance the deals, how to structure them and negotiate mm-hmm. them and so as a still relatively young, sort of mid twenties, um, mm-hmm. you know, fresh faced Business person, right. this was a great a great environment for me, and I had a boss who was very, uh, very intellectual and very smart at all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. he was a good he was a good mentor for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you decided to have a gap year.
1: Well, I made the mistake as a you've got to bear in mind I'm a sort of whatever, what was I by that stage? Probably a twenty seven, twenty eight year old. Uh, uh english guy uh made the mistake of falling in love with the aussie temp who worked uh-huh. for the company <laughs> we managed to keep that secret at work for a, for a couple of years actually we did very very well but the end result of that was that uh we decided we'd go off uh, backpacking around the world for a year uh-huh. and both resigned on the same day and uh-huh. uh, um and headed off and yeah so that was my end of my time at wrexham
0: right and uh, where did you travel to
1: um, we spent uh, about three or four months in Africa. Another three or four months going through Central Asia. Okay. Stopped in off, off in Australia for you know her family Christmas, Why? and then um, North and South America. So we, apart from Antarctica, I think we ticked off, ticked off uh, a fair bit of the world. Oh, great. Uh, I had done a year's travel on my own, just backpacking after university as well. Mm-hmm. So this is actually my third gap year. If you okay. take a look at my. My year at Phillips before uni, my year travelling after uni, and now mm. this is my second gap right. year of travel, so okay. my third gap year in total. So this is probably where my career planning falls apart a little bit. Sure.
0: <laughs> oh, well, I think uh, yeah, my, one of my big regrets is that I never did the uh, international uh, uh, thing as a young man. Yeah. You know, I was running around Australia trying to be a rock star for four <laughs> years, so I, I don't regret it at all, but... Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm sure you've got some fantastic stories. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: Them. And we still, Sarah and I, still sort of laugh and right. We still we can be. Now the kids are getting a, bit, a little bit older. They're 14, 15, and 16 now. We can be a little bit more honest about some of the <laughs> some of the not so good things we got up to <laughs> on those trips. Yes. <laughs> some of the things we wouldn't have told the younger kids, oh, but now they're a bit older, right. and they can have a laugh with us. Uh, really,
0: Dad? Did you do that? You mean you were fun once? Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so
1: then return to the UK. Return to the UK. Um, and you know, to pay off the pay off the travel debt right. um managed very lucky found myself another corporate strategy m&a job which was an area an area i really enjoyed working in and there was always
0: mm-hmm. just very
1: varied and there's a lot of a lot of um intellectual challenge in mm-hmm. that and really interesting role and a more the senior that was with
0: role. A home improvements business what a bit like bunnings or uh,
1: well they so kingfisher was a is a is still a, a retail group they um they've diversified a lot well, they changed a little bit, I should say, since I left them. But they're still a very well-known retail um, right. group based in London, but a global, global organization. They're they're um, they owned electrical retail stores, uh, chains of stores. Mm. Um, they owned home improvements. So they have so they owned. Uh, there's a there's a company in the UK called B and Q, which is like a Bunnings, right? But quite a lot bigger. Obviously, it's the UK. Yeah. Uh, and they owned a number of those those chains around around the world as well. Okay. And they were on a very. The CEO then was. Um, very much on a an acquisition trail around the world. Really right. wanted to grow the business internationally. So I spent a fair amount of my time in that role, um, working with uh, potential acquisition targets in South America and okay. Far East, on the right. continental Europe. So I found myself again, you know, relatively young in my career. Really, I was probably early thirties by that time. Mm. Um, found myself jumping on planes intercontinental every week or so and mm-hmm. um, and uh, and again time of life with without kids and responsibilities was great mm-hmm. it was an awesome time to be uh, to be mm-hmm. doing that to really and learning was, all the time
0: uh, your wife uh, <coughs> champing with that business as
1: well no no <laughs> we uh, we managed to cut the, the work the right. the work tire at that point um, but, no, she was, she, was, she was working in corporate events, actually, for, a, oh, for a, really? um, an investment bank in London, which right. was an awesome job. She loved it.
0: Right. Yeah. I wonder what the whole sort of Me Too movement and uh, everything that's uh, going on, what effect that will have on the, uh, the office romance.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Um, I'm not sure you're ever going to stop it. No. <laughs> I was reading an article yesterday, uh, how in the US now, you know, there's such concern about mm, it that, uh, mm. you know, people are... Um, just you know, men are saying, "I won't have a meeting mm. with a woman on my own. I won't really? travel with a colleague on my own. Mm. I won't take a colleague out to dinner on my own." Mm. Um, because just you know, that's too f- risky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. I think that that's a tremendous shame. In fact, mm. uh, I had a lady on the podcast named Susie Lightfoot, who is a um, an executive women's personal branding specialist. Mm. And uh, you know, I said to her, "Do you think the Me Too movement will, in many respects, be?" counterproductive mm. to women achieving career success because of, you know, the blowback, and she didn't seem to think so. But, uh, you know, I, I really think that, that uh, um, you know, there's some con- genuine concerns here that need to yeah. be addressed. Yeah, it's, it's
1: a in- really interesting question. I have no idea what the answer is. But and it's, I suppose uh, it yeah.
0: ties in with your business too, because I imagine yeah. that, you know, a, a percentage of um, people's psychological um you know, challenges at work come from those kind of dynamics of relationships with their boss or yeah, their yeah. subordinates or whatever it might be?
1: You can do, yes, yes. Um, so on average, about a third of the issues or challenges that people present right. uh, to us with relate to the workplace. Right. And about two-thirds relate to something in their yeah, right, okay. personal or private uh-huh, life. Yeah. So the biggest the biggest reason people present will be relationship issues. Right. And it's, not, it's not work relationships, it's yeah. personal relationships. Yeah. Uh, we also classify mental health issues as right. being personal, although mm. this is you know, stress, anxiety, and depression. Mm. Of course, the triggers for, the, for that can be in, can be from the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of grey area whether that is work related mm. or um, or personal related. But yeah, definitely of the of the presenting concerns, which is the, the term we use for um, that are related to the workplace. Um, yeah, we, we do come across a lot of conflict, bullying, discrimination. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you you realise some of the challenges people people mm-hmm. do have that can come from potentially an overall corporate culture that they're in that they're part of, or maybe just one individual mm-hmm. person or manager that they work for. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, uh, it is uh, quite the minefield. So um, Kingfisher for again about three years, yes. and then off to um, AXA. So that was in Australia. Yeah.
1: So the deal when I. Uh, when I proposed to my wife, right. she accepted with with a condition. A caveat. A caveat. <laughs> Bear in mind, we're still living in the UK at the time. Right. The caveat was that, yeah, I'd love to marry you. I'm not sure those were quite the words she, right. she used, but I think that's what she meant. Right. Um, but uh, when we have kids, we're moving back to Australia.
0: Right, okay.
1: And actually, that was fine with me. I'd been to Australia several times by that point. I spent mm. a few months backpacking here you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, earlier in my life. And um, I knew it would be a great environment to bring up kids. And I knew, actually, my, in my opinion, I still think this. Actually, to be honest, I don't think London is a good environment to bring up kids. And because my, of the political situation. No, or? no, I think it's just a massive city. It's a right. huge city. It's a it's a fantastic place to be mm. career wise, and it's a fantastic place to be as an adult when you haven't got those kids and commitments. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a huge city, and to live. To live somewhere where you've actually got a bit of green space and environment where the kids can go to school and not be sort of surrounded by concrete mm. the whole time, mm. you've got to live quite a long way out, and then you've got a, a nightmare commute yeah. to and from work if you're working in London. For sure. So if we had stayed in the UK, I, I even without Sarah's caveat, um, when we were ready to have kids, um, we would have moved away from London. Right. Um, and uh, and so London really wasn't an option, even in my right. book. Okay. I, was, I was happy that Melbourne was the, the, the right. option we chose because uh-huh. I'd been there before I knew it was a great place to live and, mm. and, and was confident that the kids would have a nice environment to, okay. to grow up in
0: and did you secure the uh, AXA role before you moved or you no,
1: no. Right. so here's another really really um, you know T- tips for uh, for career career beginners don't don 't follow my uh, my decision making right. <laughs> don 't take three gap years and and uh, transplant yourself from the uk to australia mid mid career well, it seemed to work yes. out okay well for yeah probably more by, more my luck than judgment i right. suspect oh, well, but um, now I arrived in australia with no job at a time in my career when you know um uh, my, my peers back in the UK and you know were you know their careers were kind of really taking off they mm-hmm. were getting to that sort of middle management level starting to earn you know better money and everything mm-hmm. and I just took myself straight back to back right. to zero again which was a really interesting career move but I've I've always and probably you know this is probably reflective of the of the gap years as well I've always prioritized myself over my career and yeah back back yourself to
0: sure.
1: back yourself to 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 make up the difference you know if, if I've if I've gone back to square one by moving to Australia then I'll back myself to get get a decent job and, and get back to where I was
0: before. Great and so how long did it take you to achieve the new role once you got here?
1: So AXA was a contracting role um, okay. that started off being an eight-week contract and turned into 18 months right. um, and another really good blue chip organisation mm-hmm. to have on my CV so I was mm-hmm. pretty pleased with that and I got that very quickly because it was a initially a short term contract I was working for them within a month of arriving
0: and in a similar sort of space of m uh, and- no
1: it was a project role they had just uh, i can't remember the detail actually but they had um, they had just made a major acquisition themselves so it was actually it was actually an integration project that right. i was involved in in okay. a couple of the streams of yeah so it was um it was okay work but it was it was proper work for a good blue chip organization sure. and um and that for me at that time it was a mm-hmm. very good way to kind of get myself back onto the onto the career path in a new environment mm-hmm. what i did find and i don't know whether this would be this still the still case now this is going back to 2001 um Uh, What I did find that I uh, that I found really frustrating actually is I would go and talk to recruitment consultants in Melbourne about you know here I am here's my CV here's some fantastic organisations I've worked for in London and some really good career you know story that I can tell about what Mm. I've got to offer Mm. and the the most common response that I had from recruitment consultants then was that's all very well Chris but what have you done in Australia yeah
0: well that's because Uh, most recruitment (laughs) consultants are absolutely useless and I wouldn't even trust (laughs) to talk my dog. Uh, <laughs> so, so I realised I was, right.
1: I was, you know, a bit of an uphill battle here, and I had to. And you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that they were wrong by any means; they were reflecting the attitude. I'm sure that employers that they worked for uh, were going to have. So, so I had, I didn't, I did, wasn't sort of suggesting that that was the wrong question for mm-hmm, them to ask. But I found mm-hmm. it frustrating that that was right. the attitude that I seemed to be confronted with. It's like, hang on, I've just spent ten years working sure. for blue chip organisations in London, yeah, and now I'm in Melbourne, and you're yeah. asking me what I've done in Melbourne? Yeah, really?
0: It's not yeah. like you're working in a. Uh, a vastly different culture. If you'd met, no, to Japan exactly or same China language,
1: same culture, sure. really. And you've, you've heard of all the organizations I worked for before,
0: right? But and so, how did the AXA role come about then? Was it through a recruiter or it was through a recruiter? Right. But
1: because of the, initially it was only an
0: eight week contract, I think right. they, were, they were more prepared to you know, uh, give you the chance. And you, they had the opportunity to try before they buy it, that's right, that's right. Good. Okay, so you're in Melbourne for uh. Uh, your new role, you joined yep. AXA, yep. there for 18 months or yep. so, yep. and then uh,
1: off to Bupa. Yeah, so I was I was always aware that the AXA role, even though it went on for 18 months, was not really what I
0: wanted to do, or it right. wasn't what I was
1: qualified to do, and uh, whilst it was a good organisation, I actually did apply for a couple of other roles within AXA, thinking mm-hmm. well, it was a great organisation to work for. Sure. Uh, they didn't come off, uh, but I was always always sort of on the lookout for, for, for external roles, and um, and then the Bupa roll came up. Uh, ironically, a, a UK-based organisation, albeit a very big organisation in Australia
0: mm-hmm. in its own right. Um, and, uh, yeah, went to work for them. So you moved from consumer packaging to a uh, retail business to an insurance business. Now you're in a healthcare business. Yes, yes. Uh, and then obviously moving into EAP. You know, how, how did you find that you were able to you know, move across such different industries when a lot of people would think I'm in an industry and I've mm. built a personal brand and, mm. you know, some um, uh, intellectual property, I'm here for life. Uh, mm. You know, your mm. attitude has obviously been industry is largely irrelevant. I, I think it is to a certain extent. It probably perhaps depends
1: what, what role you're doing. Sure. I was doing, at that, until that time, I had been doing, you know, corporate head office mm-hmm, roles, mm-hmm. strategy, M&A, um and uh, a little a few other things but not basically around around that area and um I think those are very very transferable skills and transferable mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. so I don't think it for what I was doing I don't think it really mattered too mm-hmm. much what industry I worked in there's always a learning curve but there is if you went from one uh, healthcare industry to another there'd be a learning curve mm-hmm. because you talk about very different cultures and 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 histories and and, and strategies so mm-hmm. I think there's always a learning curve when you change organizations. The fact that you're changing industries might increase that a bit, but mm-hmm. I think as a, 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 when, you, when you change jobs, you're, you, you sort of got to back yourself to get up that learning curve pretty mm-hmm. quickly and start demonstrating you're adding value and you're not out of your depth in a new industry sector.
0: And so this was the first business that you'd really spent you know, a sizable yes. amount of time with, 12 yes. years, yeah, and yeah. had a, a number of changes of roles mm. in that time. Yep. Um, uh, so tell us a bit about that.
1: So I guess what got me the job was that it was another strategy and M and A role. So I'd yeah. now done three years at Rex three years at Kingfisher, mm-hmm. with a, and then obviously a, a couple of gap years mm-hmm. thrown in. And now I embarked on another mm-hmm. um, uh, strategy and M and A role with mm-hmm. with Bupa. Um, I did that role for um, something like three or four years, but I I I was sitting, I think I was getting to the point where. After now, in total, about eight or nine years of strategy and M and A, it's like okay, if I, I really need to kind of get out of the sort of ivory tower mm. type of role. Mm-hmm. Not that I hadn't enjoyed it, and I was still enjoying it, mm-hmm. but I wanted to actually, to be frank, I wanted to become a CEO. Right. and... And
0: so was that the first time? that well, I, don't really... I don't think I, know, I
1: don't think I ever articulated it in quite that much detail. Right. But I, want, I really felt that I needed to get some operational general sure. management experience. I wasn't going to get in mm-hmm. working for a strategy team.
0: And was that the first time you really had that thought of you know? Yeah. I, I, right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. what what brought that about?
1: Um, I think just a sort of a, 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 sort of a career path. Mm-hmm. Look at myself. So introspection. Look at myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I wasn't aware that I was sort of mentored in that direction. I didn't have a mentor really then. And mm-hmm. nobody I went to talk to to sort of advise me or mo- open my eyes to things. Mm-hmm. But I. I, I could see where I was heading in terms of career at that point and whilst it wasn't a bad place by any means mm. I actually wanted something that was broader than being a strategy director. Right. Which is kind of where I was gonna sure. head. Or potentially a CFO, I guess, if you had that experience with mm-hmm. you know, the accountancy. Um, I wanted something broader than that. Mm. So but um,
0: specifically CEO. Well,
1: I mean I probably wasn't quite as specific as C. I just I right. certainly wanted general management. I wanted right. I wanted I wanted uh, more I wanted there to be more career opportunities opening up for me in future than okay. I think would have done if I'd stayed in okay. strategy and M&A.
0: And obviously BUPA were pretty supportive of that. Yeah, yeah, very, they yeah, up yeah absolutely.
1: Options. So I spent, um, I actually spent the uh, best part of a year working in their marketing team, um, which was a big step for me, a you know, good learning curve, helped them develop the, um, their first customer value proposition, which okay. they had never really formally done before, mm-hmm. which... Which I was able to sort of bring my strategy experience in to, but that I'll was
0: for the Australian business or the global the business. The Australian business, okay, yeah. right.
1: Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, I, I guess what I brought to that was my strategy experience, but what they gave me was a whole heap of knowledge of how marketing works and marketing right. theory and mm-hmm. how to put together a you know a, mm-hmm. a, um, a value proposition for customers and express mm-hmm. that in in brand terms, mm-hmm. which was fantastic for me. That was only a a year long project I knew mm-hmm. it was only going to be that um so then I was then I sort of again put my hand up with Booper and say well looking for the next thing um and part of Booper Australia's growth strategy uh, back then Booper in Australia was really only in Victoria and South Australia they had mm-hmm. the HBA brand in in Melbourne and Victoria and they had the mutual community brand in South Australia mm-hmm. they then uh branched out organically into uh, New South Wales and Queensland, mm. and when we went to Queensland, I put my hand up for the job of basically leading that market entry. Right. Um, which at that time, which was just a fantastic opportunity really, it was a, a very small startup. I literally started off with 10 people in, in an office down on Riverside, a serviced office.
0: And did they relocate with you, or you employed them locally? Uh, a
1: bit of both. Okay. I think there were a couple of people I brought up with me from Melbourne, Most, right. mostly employed locally. Mm-hmm. But I had the support of a big organization yeah. and who were very much strategically behind what I was trying to do. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, to come up here as a, with an unknown brand, HBA was completely unknown in mm. um, Queensland then, still is of course, but um, the hi- history overtook the need to mm. actually make it better known because we had a year as a new startup um, in a new city, a new state, uh, trying to sort of build some brand awareness, build some appreciation of what we brought to the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a heap of fun. Um, you get to try all sorts of things when you're small and unknown.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I remember one time um, we, were tr- we were trying to do some things which were sort of raise awareness of our brand and sort of catch people's eye a little bit. Um, we started sponsoring the Brisbane Lions um, uh, down the road, which was which was a really good brand thing mm-hmm. as well. Um, but mostly that was probably the only big thing that we did. That was obviously with, with mm. the support of Booper, not just not just um, HBA in Queensland, but we'd, we'd, we we uh, we. When, when you're small and unknown, you can sort of take more of an ambush approach mm-hmm. to marketing and and be really quite spontaneous. They, it's
0: like guerrilla marketing.
1: And I, I remember one time we uh, we hired an ice sculptor, right? He set himself up on um, the square at top at the top of um, Queen Street Mall. Yeah. Outside the is it outside the casino there? Uh, oh, okay. Right yeah. up the George again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, he had this van full of massive blocks of ice. And he, on a Friday lunchtime, got his chainsaw out and just created mayhem. Right. And he started carving. The first thing he carved, obviously, because we told him to, was a a big HBA logo. Right. It was like probably a metre and a half high and a metre and a half across. And he put it on this big... Big um, slab behind what he then did for the rest of the, rest of the couple of hours of lunch. that was sitting there, a brand logo behind behind him. And and I he,
0: presume this was in winter, otherwise. it probably I think be. it was in winter. <laughs> yes, um,
1: and he carved he carved a sculpture of the Story Bridge and oh, uh, and great. and the, the Gabba and a few other things. And and the crowd we got it was just amazing. And I said like, oh, right. oh, this is incredible. But most mainstream organisations wouldn't either wouldn't either think to do it or wouldn't. It would sort of be a risky thing to do.
0: In what respect?
1: I think because it's it's um I just can't imagine McDonald's right. doing that. And uh, so why ice? Uh because you can do it with a chainsaw. Uh-huh.
0: You needed noise, you yeah. needed theater. Okay. Um
1: and uh and I think we yeah, when you're a when you're a small organization you sort of um you sort of got nothing to lose. Okay. Uh so we just tried a few things, oh, it's great. And and, well, it was, and and
0: so, you know, I'm always interested uh people or organisations do these zany out of the box uh, things. Mm. Was there a, a measurable um, result in uplifting memberships or?
1: Yes, I mean you couldn't link it to a single activity like the oh, ice sculptor, sure. <laughs> no. But generally, yes, we, we, we got really, pardon the pun, we got great cut through mm-hmm. in that first 12 months. Okay. The uh, awareness really went, mm-hmm. oh, okay, admittedly a relatively low roof, but mm-hmm. went through the roof compared to where we'd started from. Mm-hmm. How much of that was attributable to you know, a mainstream marketing activity like sponsoring the Brisbane Lions back in the days when probably more people watched them because they used to win sometimes. Right. <laughs> um, or, or how much of it was attributable to some of the more sort of tactical things like a stupid ice sculpture on yeah. Queen Street Mall. Who knows? But, and, we, um, but we did a lot of corporate networking as well, got right. into the local chamber of commerce um, and uh, really kind of worked hard to get in people's faces mm-hmm. and tell our story. Okay. Um, not a, you know, obviously, you, you, you do it in a, in a mature, professional, respectful way. But mm. you know, we, you, you've got to when you're unknown, you've got to make a lot of noise. To and was it own. a sort of
0: a David versus Goliath yeah. story? Right? Yeah, okay. it
1: was really. And actually, the two Goliaths that we're up against. Mm. I'm trying to make sure I have got my biblical story the right way around there. Yes, the, the two <laughs> we, were the, we were the David. <laughs> uh, the two Goliaths we're up against in Queensland were Medibank and, H, and MBF. Right. They were the two. Big, biggest, yeah. obviously Medibank, um, and um, Medibank's based down in Melbourne, mm-hmm. uh, but it was had a very big market presence in yeah. um, in Queensland, and um, MBF based down in Sydney, mm-hmm. but also they were the two big big market share players mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Queensland, and we we found it really easy actually to take market share off them, mm-hmm. albeit from a very small start. Mm-hmm. I think people were quite um, interested in. A new kid on the block, someone who's mm. different, and we, we did things a bit differently. We presented ourselves differently. We had a very good product and very good benefits, mm. um, and um, and we found ourselves taking market share off mm. both of those very comfortably. Actually, mm. I, mean, I say comfortable. It was a, it was a lot of work. When you've got a small number of people mm. trying to get themselves established in the market, it's it wasn't it wasn't the financial risk that people take starting their own business. You know, we're still backed up by Booper of course. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the work you need to do, it, it you know it's, it, mm. it, it takes quite a lot.
0: Mm. And I imagine that industry now has become much more a commodity uh, because of these websites like I yeah. and so on. It, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that
1: that's the um, uh, that, that probably has changed the industry a fair bit. Yeah, right. know, there are a number of others. You know, compare the market and other other yeah. organisations that probably well they do commoditise it. But mm. It becomes increasingly hard for an organisation like Booper or MediBank or whoever it is to really get their message across as to mm. why they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is as well with any sort of insurance and probably health insurance is, 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 is the same. People tend to be quite sort of cynical to the, about the insurer. Mm. You know, you're just there to have money, make money, you're there to rip mm. us off. And mm. I guess because I worked for Booper, I understood just how much work went on behind the scenes to really protect customers from nasty mm. shocks. Mm. Mm. Impossible to do 100%. And unfortunately, it's the nasty shocks that mm. get talked about in the sure. media. But there's a lot of work goes that goes into trying to create products that um, really do protect people and add value mm. to, to customers, but. Um, and
0: during this period, I mean, you you said a number of years earlier than that, you thought, I think I'm on a career pathway to, to becoming a CEO. Mm. At any point did you think, oh, it'd be good for me to go and do some additional professional qualifications like an MBA or, Interesting know-
1: question, yeah. Um, yes, I absolutely had that thought and that mm. conversation with a number of people. Probably when I was, um, Probably around that time, actually, when I came to Queensland, now I had a, I was in a general manager role, albeit at a very small organisation. Mm. Perhaps before I answer that question, I might sort of go to the next stage of the story because it's probably sure. relevant to this. Uh, after a year of playing David to the MBF and Medibank Goliath, Booper acquired MBF. Right. So uh, we suddenly, suddenly, David, David and one of the Goliaths are now uh-huh. together in the oh, oh. <laughs> and that was interesting because. Um, I guess my first assumption is, well, I'm probably out of a job because, of course, MBF had had a general manager in Queensland, and a yeah. huge team, they had you know thirty odd stores mm. around Queensland. We only had one at that time and a mobile sales force. Um, but uh, so I was thinking, well, I'm either out or I'm back down to Melbourne. I'm mm. probably not going to be up in Queensland for much longer um, mm. because we've just acquired a very mature Queensland business. Um, but Pooper went through the the, the whole. No integration spill and fill mm-hmm. process, and I was very very surprised and lucky that I was man- managed to get the GM role for a Booper in Queensland, which mm-hmm. was the the combined role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suddenly found myself going from ten people to probably about five hundred people in mm-hmm. Queensland at that time. The structure wasn't the structure was such that they weren't all reporting to me directly, but uh, my direct team was about one hundred and fifty. Okay. So, um, but we also had a big call center up here, mm-hmm. and 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 so there was uh, suddenly there was a the complete change of, mm. you know, position in the market and, and strategy. And so, in a way I was a bit disappointed actually because I loved the year of being the new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. So much fun. Right. Um, but, f- in terms of me picking up really meaningful general management general management experience, mm-hmm. the, the, the broader role was clearly mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of challenges that come with managing mm-hmm. hundreds of people and, and a being a big, a big established brand in the market, all mm-hmm. the risks that go with that. Um, so it was probably after that time that I started having serious conversations with people about potentially going to do an MBA. Mm. And the the advice that I got, some people would, would say, yeah, you really should, you should, do, you should go and do mm. it. And uh, the more common advice I got, which I actually was the advice I gave myself as well, was uh, would I actually necessarily gain anything from yeah. an, uh, an MBA? Because mm. I've done, by that time i have done 10 years of strategy and m mm, and mm. I was picking up fantastic general management experience on the job. Mm. Um, what were the technical skills that an, an MBA would really give me that I hadn't already picked up in my yeah. career? Uh, and probably the one thing, you know, it's a lot, of, a lot of cost, obviously, and a lot of time and effort involved in doing a good MBA. Mm. Probably the one thing that an MBA was going to help me with would be the network that you pick up by, yeah. by doing it. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the thing. That I haven't got, yep. um, but of course I've acquired that through other means. Sure. But but who knows what sort of network I could have had if I'd gone to you know do a really good top notch um, MBA somewhere.
0: Yeah, look, I, I definitely agree with that, and I mean I've got an executive MBA which cost mm. a lot of money, but I think you know I, uh, as a recruiter of very senior executives, very very rarely, very rarely does an employer say, "I want a candidate who's got an MBA." Okay. And, uh, and I think that the, the qualification has been massively devalued because they're allowing people in to do MBAs who've got no professional experience. Right, um, yes. Uh, and they're also allowing a lot of international students, and don't get me wrong, doing an MBA in English was hard enough, let alone... You know, <laughs> foreign, language. foreign language. Foreign language. <laughs> but, um, you know, it really has devalued the qualification. Mm. And when you think about what an MBA was originally designed for, you know, somebody's an engineer, they mm. move into a leadership role... They need to get a bit of marketing, a bit of strategy, accounting, of finance, and stuff. You know, they are there are, you know, they've done their undergraduate degree in a non-business mm. related um, profession. Yep. Uh, and then when they move into more general management roles, they need to broaden out their leadership um, uh, qualifications. Mm. That's what it was for. Mm. It, it wasn't really for people who came from a business degree background. Sure. And so. Um, now the MBA schools don't really like me because uh, <laughs> they invite me to talk to their students about how to get a job, and uh, and you know I, my message is that um, I think for people who are later in their career, it's a lot more important to go and do further qualification, which is narrow but deep. Right. You know, so you do a graduate diploma in applied finance if that's your space, or mm-hmm. uh, or marketing, or HR, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But for a CEO, you know. Um, uh, you just can't beat real practical experience. And mm, obviously mm. You, you had that. Mm. So how did the um, the assured program uh, role come on your radar? So I got to
1: a point after, I eventually was with Bupa for about 12 years. Mm. Uh, I got to the point after about 10 years, there may have been some subconscious link to, my long service leave clicking in and that's, right. I, 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 I never thought of that at the time but it's possible yeah. that you know whatever it was maybe it was just 10 years which seemed like a round number I got to mm. the point where I sort of thought well I've had a, I've had an amazing time Booper was a great organisation to work for and the journey of integrating the, the Queensland business um, was fantastic the, the mm. skills that I picked up through you know, trial and error and, exp- and hard-bitten experience of mm. how to lead a team of people, how to lead them through massive change. I mean, Bupa changed so much in operationally, strategically, culturally, mm. um, as well as practical things like completely changing the IT systems, completely changing the brand. I mean, mm. all, the, all the all the types of change you can imagine I've mm. been through in a period of probably about five years in the Queensland mm. role, which was, which was incredible. And I felt like I've actually now got a pretty good CV. You know, I've got something I can really market. Mm. And I've been here for 10 years. Do I feel like sort of continuing to press for more senior positions in Bupa, potentially, yes, mm. yeah. And there were a couple of things that, that came up that I looked at, um, but I actually thought, well, I, th- I think what I need to do is work for a smaller organisation, mm-hmm. but in a more senior role. So mm-hmm. I was the G- Queensland general manager for Bupa, which is a massive global organisation, mm-hmm. 50,000 odd employees or something. What, where, where I think I need to go next, this is me talking to myself, mm-hmm. um, is where I think I need to go next is to get... A CEO or MD role of a smaller medium business, mm-hmm. where I can really use some of the experience that I've got, but but, it, but you can you can make decisions so much more mm-hmm. quickly with a small organisation. You can really shape a team and a strategy mm-hmm. around what around your vision much more easily in a smaller organisation. I think, and um, uh, and so I started looking outside, and um, yeah, I was lucky that the. In fact, I, I, I was doubly lucky because at the time when I was going through that process. Cooper then went through a, a bit of a restructure, and my the role that I was doing effectively ceased to exist because it okay. got merged into a different role. So of course, after twelve years, you're thinking, "Ding, ding! Yeah. <laughs> this is very good timing." Um, you get a nice redundancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the stars definitely aligned for okay. me, um, and uh, I did say my career path was part as much luck as judgment. Yeah. Um, and um, and so I would you know put myself out of the job market for the. F- First time in 12 years, actually, which is right. really quite a... And was it
0: an advertised role or were you tapped on the shoulder? Actually,
1: yes, it was an advertised role. I went I went through probably a few different channels. I spoke to Erete, actually, okay. as part of that process. Yeah. Um, spoke to recruiters both both here in Brisbane and also down in Melbourne because we were sort of mindful that this might be the time for yeah. us to relocate our family back to Melbourne, which is mm. where my wife's from. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, know, through the process, a few things came up that I looked at a didn't quite sort of stack up as mm-hmm. to what I wanted. Um, and um, most, mostly that was through either headhunters or, or you know, recruitment mm-hmm. consultants. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, the role, the, the Assure role, was actually something that came up on SEEK. Right. Which was really a surprise, because what I found was that CEO roles in SEEK were generally sort of government or not-for-profit, where there's sort okay. of a process they have to go through, they have to put it on SEEK. Sure. Not too many really uh, attractive, in my opinion, really attractive private sector roles at that level, find their way onto Seek. (laughs) That was what I found anyway. And
0: so um, uh, what was it that attracted you to Assure specifically? Uh,
1: The role, being a CEO role Mm -hmm. of a small business, Um, the sector. Mm -hmm. It was still in the healthcare sector, which is where I had been at Booper, and I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. but more probably pointy 20 healthcare than mm-hmm. Bupa had done, I was, in the, I was actually in the insurance part of Bupa, yeah. so arguably I was already one step removed from healthcare mm-hmm. provision, mm-hmm. although Bupa does do a lot of healthcare provision. Um, and, um, and culturally as well, I actually, by chance, I knew, I still do know, um, Murray Davis, who's the original founder of Assure Programs mm-hmm. back in the 90s, he uh, retired from the business and sold it to Therese Rain. Former wife, or the wife, oh, yeah, as I should yeah. say, or former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Right. Okay. That's kind um, of Ingeus. Yes. Yes. Right. So ingus acquired a short programs from Murray mm-hmm. um, a few years ago. Was, you know, twenty eleven, I think it is. Um, but because I knew Murray, I you know I spoke to him. I wondered what's the organisation like. This mm-hmm. role's come up, and he was very excited. And I said, yeah, you know, you should, you should go for it. And um, uh, and I um, uh, so yeah, I applied for it. Um, it was an interesting process with the application because I had my interview with uh, with the recruitment consultant that was um, that was running the job, and the next step was for me to, having got through that, was for me to go to the UK for my sort of final interview because Therese was then right. and still is partly based in London, okay. so she wanted to interview me in London for mm-hmm. the for the role. Fantastic news. Uh, then the recruitment consultant said, "And there's another and there's another person who they're sending over right. as well." Yep. Okay. Fair enough. You yep. expect it's going to be competitive. I was literally just about to go off on a week's uh, holiday around the wet Sundays with my family and some mm. friends on a yacht literally the next day. Mm. And I and I took the risk. Right. <laughs> I took the risk and I said, "Can can I please go to London the week after, not yep. next week?" Yeah. And of course the answer was yes, absolutely no problem, but just be aware that the other guys going next week.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> so when I uh, I was out of phone range for a week on this yacht, came back and back into phone range and I was half expecting the call, "Don't bother coming to London," right. you know? Uh, but well, it wasn't... I suppose
0: when they expect you to travel to the other side of the world, it's only reasonable to give you some flexibility in terms of your availability. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: true, except if the first person had, mm. you know, ticked all their boxes, they might have said, well, why would we, you know, in- right. invest another 10 grand or whatever on an yeah, airfare sure. across to, you know, for the second person? Yeah. That was what I was sort of half anticipating. But I was
0: expecting you to say, and then I got on the yacht, and the other candidate was on the yacht too? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, right.
1: yeah, um, luckily... Got the call when I got back into phone range. That yeah, still want to yeah. go. Here's your here's your flight. Your travel plans went All over right. there and had the interview and got, Very, the, got the role. Good yeah.
0: stuff. And so, um, what was the mandate when you joined the business? You know, what 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 were you brought in to achieve? Uh, the business. Uh, uh, what I was
1: told, and I pretty quickly you know agreed with this when I sort of got into into the business was that. Uh, Assure Programmes was fundamentally a very good business, had a really good mm-hmm. reputation for the quality of its service and particularly its clinical quality. Um, it's the only national EAP provider that exclusively uses psychologists. Right. That's a real USP for okay. us.
0: yeah.
1: Um, all of the other national providers use, they use some psychs, but they use a lot of counsellors, social workers, in a couple of cases they actually use chaplains because they're, they're religious-based organisations. Okay. Which... It may be fine for some types of counselling, sure. but if you have someone coming in with depression, mm. I think you want somebody who's going to actually you know, a, a really diagnose you properly and refer yeah. you properly into the right sure. treatment path. Yeah. Um, so that's our USP, and we did that very well. Mm-hmm. Um, where Ashore had lost its way, I think, um, probably from Frank, probably in the time since Murray had retired, actually, because mm. he, he ran a very good business and he had, a, had an excellent reputation mm-hmm. in the market, where it had lost its way for uh, for a few years um, after his departure was operationally, um, there were just too many. Processes that were not, that were clunky, they weren't efficient, they weren't effective, they weren't delivering a good customer outcome. So, clinically, great, Mm. but how fast are you answering the phone? Mm. How good are you at sending out invoices to customers? How good are you at uh, reporting EAP activity Mm. to all our customers? How good are you at actually getting out and meeting your customers? Mm. By what I say, customer in the organization that's paying for it, the employer. So, at the client level, service was excellent. Mm. But at at the employer level, and they're the ones who make the decisions to whether to appoint us or retain us. It was there were just too many complaints happening mm-hmm. and I could see what was happening operationally. It was um, the basic sort of foundation of the foundations of the business were mm-hmm. just too shaky. Mm-hmm. And what I wasn't surprised, because uh, what, what, what I think can go hand in hand in that, is when 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 an organisation or when people work for an organisation that they know is creaking at the seams and, mm-hmm. and isn't running very effectively, it brings down
0: mm.
1: staff morale and engagement. So the other thing I sort of inherited, if you want to call it that, was... Pretty poor engagement, mm-hmm. um, so um, I guess my journey was. Oh, oh, and I guess the other the other thing which goes with all of that is it wasn't making money. Right. These are all these are all different sides of the same coin, sure. arguably. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. Um, so it was pretty clear what my strategy needed to be. Right. And uh, were you
0: fully aware of the challenges before yeah. you started?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Most of them. Right.
0: And you're excited about going in? Yeah, and Turning the ship.
1: Yeah. And I remember talking to Therese in my final interview when we were discussing some of these challenges and I described to her the journey I've been through with Bupa, which was just invaluable in mm. terms of really feeling like I had the mm. experience and some sort of tools up my sleeve to, mm. to help to turn this thing around. And mm. I sort of described to her you know, how, how I would go about doing that and mm-hmm. that obviously ended well. well <laughs> um, so
0: three years into the role, yep. if you look at that time, you know, what would be some of the key achievements during that period?
1: Um, in the first 12 months, writing the ship, uh-huh. um, sorting out the, the processes, getting, it, getting the operational foundations of the business working properly. Yeah. That would be one. Right. Two, at the same time, repairing staff engagement. Okay. Um, getting people, in, and it's not not an original line by any means, mm. but I but I always use the line, making a sure a place where people want to work.
0: And so what were some of the things you did to change that?
1: put in place a proper performance management system mm-hmm. so people were absolutely clear about what was expected and whatever their role was, yeah. how they were going to be rewarded, recognized, um, introduced um, uh, uh, quite a range of reward and recognition options mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. to, there wasn't really wasn't that much in place before, mm-hmm. To particularly recognition, I mean, no business can afford to just go in and just increase salaries mm-hmm. and arguably that's not a very good staff engagement Tool anyway, mm-hmm. but um, people really weren't even clear what was really expected of them, how they were performing, and mm-hmm. how they were how they were being rewarded for that. So, putting in, in place a proper framework for that, mm-hmm. and um, uh, really cranking up communication and recognition, right. so a lot of praise, a lot of sure. you, know, you know recognition of people around the business, um, both what I would call frontline people, the yeah. psychs who are actually delivering care to our mm-hmm. clients, people who are answering the phones mm-hmm. to clients, people who are responding to critical incidents and trauma i would call all, all of those our frontline people right. and then back office people like me who yep. you know don't do any of that but we right. need to support those people sure. um and and those are all very those are very different roles and yep. they need to be you know um incentivized sure. rewarded recognized in different ways but nevertheless such a small organization only about 100 people mm. you want to you want to bring that together in a way that people feel part of one team you don't mm-hmm. want to have a them and us situation yeah yeah.
0: um and uh, yeah. it seems like I'm asking this as a bit of a silly question but perhaps it's not do you have an EAP provider for your people yes we do right um,
1: it we don't have a um, we don't, we haven't got another EAP provider doing it for us right we have um, a network of private practice psychologists okay. who are separate from the psychs we use for our clients right so if I'm an Ashore Programs employee and I reach out to this service, mm-hmm. I know I'm not going to end up being counselled by a psych that also right. does work for our clients. Yeah, sure, okay. Because there's too much chance that they'll uh, know people yeah. in the shore.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so it's we, we ring fence oh, that. That's good. So you walk the talk. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. Okay. So, right, right, so that's you're saying
0: achievements? You know, you um, you righted the ship mm, in terms of the operational, mm, you know, sort of challenges. You uh, improved staff engagement. What else?
1: So that was. That was probably your first one to two years. Right. In the second year, uh really focused on growing the business mm-hmm. and investing in uh more digital technology, more services okay. for customers, really worked the customer relationships mm-hmm. and um and started to I guess kind of build the brand externally. So mm-hmm. we we're quite pretty quite internally focused for the first twelve months. Mm-hmm. Um but from year two onwards really once I felt like the foundations were in place, mm-hmm. go out there and really, mm-hmm. really um, talk to customers, really engage them in what we stood for, the value that, you know, mm-hmm. our value proposition, our USP, um, and over, in the end, that's proved, proved really valuable. I think we've mm-hmm. really seen, particularly in the last 12 months, really got a sense for um, how, how well our brand is tracking in the market with okay. customers. Um, we get a lot of feedback from customers, both, mm-hmm. both formal and informal. Um, and over the last three years now, we've grown our business by over fifty percent,
0: which is you know something we're all very proud of. Mm-hmm. And that and that
1: comes from uh, I'm not I'm not this isn't me sort mm-hmm. of um, you know talking up my my staff at all, but I always say to them with total honesty this, mm-hmm. is every, everybody contributes to that. Mm-hmm. You know that's uh, that's about the the, um, the the quality of care that our psychs give to their individual mm-hmm. clients. It's mm-hmm. about how how uh, effectively and fast, we can respond when something goes wrong in an organisation. Getting people there to make the organisation feel supported. It's about um, how well we run our operations behind the scenes, so that things are effective and we don't drop the ball. Mm. Uh, but it's totally about employee engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big disciple of um, well, it's called it's 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 called various things around the world, I think. But one of the names I, that I always use is the service profit chain. Right. Um, where what does you, that mean? So if you if you imagine that. A triangle or a circle that's got three points on it, that right. um, one of which is your staff, your people, your own yep. people. One is your customers, and one is your your, your business results, right. ultimately profit. So
0: what's the difference between that and say triple bottom line?
1: Uh, it may be the same thing, but okay. a different name. Right. I think there are quite a few. This is this is theory that goes sure. back decades. Yeah, so I'm yeah. not I'm not claiming ownership of this. Uh-huh. And, no, and I'm sure there are lots of names for the right. same thing, but. The, the the idea is that that, that that if you can get all of those three things working, mm-hmm. it becomes a virtual circle, mm-hmm. virtuous circle, I should a say, virtuous circle. Oh, okay. um, and in theory, you can you can um, increase performance in any of those three. I believe, as a leader, that the the one area you can influence performance the most is the people. Yeah. So if you can, uh, so the theory says, I think that, and I don't know whether this is the triple bottom bottom line theory, no, but if you, if you have people who feel engaged and motivated to come to work, they believe in the organisation, they really mm. want to be part of this team, mm. they will perform better but behave better to mm-hmm. each other, mm. and they'll behave better to customers. Mm-hmm. That equals customer service. Mm-hmm. If customers are getting that better quality service, they're more likely to stay with you, mm-hmm. more likely to recommend you to other customers, mm-hmm. more likely to join you. All of that turns into business results. So right. You're growing, you're growing profitably. If you're growing profitably, that makes everybody happy. Mm-hmm. So you're back to the first part of the circle again. Right. That now, now I've got this virtu- virtuous circle sure. going, then ticky it over, mm-hmm. it, the work never goes away. You've got to work hard to keep it going, mm-hmm. but but the, the results then motiv- motivate people to keep going because they right. can see that they're growing, they think they're getting rewarded and recognised for it.
0: And there's been a, a good improvement in uh, the financial bottom line as well? Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. We will grow our, well, we've, we've grown our revenue by over 50% in three years. Mm-hmm we will grow our profit by about 70% next year compared to mm-hmm. this year. Um,
0: That's excellent. And, and we so get it, we're
1: getting to the point now, and it's this, and this I don't want to sound, make it sound like we're profit gouging, we're not at all, it's actually quite a low margin business. Right. Uh, but we, we're we at the point now where we are financially sustainable. Right. Um, if we were, we've relied and probably go back two or three years, we were heavily reliant on our parent company mm-hmm. to to. to Invest in the areas we needed to to get the business mm-hmm. running the carry again. Probably. Being Ingeus, is that still the case? Uh, it is. Yes. Um, so Ingeus, um, uh Teresa Rain sold NGS to a US listed company called Providence Service Corporation right. back in 2014. Mm-hmm. So f- since 2014 we've been ultimately US listed. Okay. Um, uh, it was announced a few weeks ago that Providence is selling ingius to an Australian based organisation actually called APM. Right. Which is Fantastic news for Ashore. Mm. firstly, because we'll have an Australian, uh, ultimately Australian mm-hmm. parent, mm-hmm. whilst we're still owned by NGS, Inge- uh, mm-hmm. you know, halfway up the org chart. But um, ultimately, we'll be Australian-owned, which will probably make life easier for us. Mm. Um, uh, but also, APM are very well aligned with what Ashore does and
0: what NGS does. Right. Um, they so what's APM's business?
1: They provide. They do do some. So most most of what INGIUS does is um, employability programs. So yeah. government funded return to work programs yep, around the yep. world. It's what that's what Therese Rain, you mm-hmm. know, founded the business to do. APM does that, which is well aligned with mm-hmm. Um APM also does uh, a whole range of pub- public and privately funded um, health programs for mm-hmm. work for the for workforces. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's uh, fit for work assessments. Um, uh, rehabilitation, those okay. kinds of services, right. some of which are sort of related to physical health and yep. some related to s- psychological health. Right. Okay. Uh, so I think it's a very good uh, dovetail with what we're mm-hmm. doing.
0: And so, when you look to the future for Assure, what are the things that you're excited about, other than potentially now having an Australian parent company?
1: Um, I think continuing to grow. We're growing market share. Mm-hmm. We, we, we are. We have. You know, going back to my old strategy days, it's the perfect, the perfect combination of your growing market share in a business, in a market that's growing. Right. So you're in that top right-hand quadrant of, sure. uh, of the Boston, Consul- right. Boston Matrix. I you're know. a star. Yeah, you're, right. you're a star, exactly. You're, yep. you're growing in a growing market. Yep. Uh, and so our challenge is to make sure that we continue to reinvest back into the business enough mm-hmm. to keep our offering current and yep. contemporary. Yep. Uh, mental health is changing growing significantly mm. as a market, is also changing in terms of people's expectations of you know, technology offerings and how mm. they interact with mm. us. So, And we've invested in a number of those things ourselves and yeah. we need to continue to do that. You can't yep. just keep milking the, you, know, okay. the, you milk the cow, you not know, the star, but anyway, it's, the same, it's on the same, uh, <laughs> the same matrix. Um, but, um, but actually that's p- perhaps a good analogy. We can't mm. treat ourselves as the cash cow or mm. we just keep taking money out of it. So when I say we're growing profit by 70% next year, that's actually off the back of having invested a lot in the business this mm-hmm. year. So we're almost taking the break off a little bit next right. year because we actually need to deliver more sure. you know, to, a, to our shareholders and that's right. fair enough. Yeah. Um, but we need to make sure we do treat ourselves as a star, not a, mm-hmm. not a cow. Right. Uh, you need to keep reinvesting in it sure. um, because we've got some very good competitors and right. you know, if we don't, they will. Yeah. Um, and we're only as good as our next you know, customer, customer interaction. So we've got to make sure that we, uh, we deliver.
0: And what about in terms of your own career? You know, you've been mm. there now for three years. Yeah, yeah. Um, where, where would you like to see your career grow to?
1: Um, for now, I can see really exciting opportunities within Assure. I, mm. think we, I think we'll continue to grow. I'm excited to see what the APM uh, acquisition mm. does for mm. us, and me personally, um, in terms of career opportunities. I think we have the opportunity to really diversify as well mm. in the market, so I don't see any sort of personal lead that I have that I have that doesn't sit within that radar of mm-hmm. what a shore can do now.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've spoken a lot about business today, a lot sure. about your career, but uh, before we wrap it up, you yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you like to get up to when you're not at work. I mean you, you, you obviously you love to travel and you love mm. to drink mm-hmm. beer. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. awesome. um
1: I would like to say my ideal weekend would be Camping on Morton Island or Stradbroke Island with my family and doing absolutely nothing. Right. Just just swimming in the sea and yeah. you know cooking on the barbie and you Are know you the having a four wheel drive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Goes off yeah. The beaten track. yeah, definitely. So you, uh, head down uh, to the bottom end of Main Beach on Stradbroke, where yeah, you know an hour away from any from right, anybody else or, or Morton Island, which is yeah. beautiful, and get away from it. I say I'd like to think that would be my ideal weekend. The right. reality of teenage kids is, yeah. it's very hard to get away because they're all doing and sport everything, and everything sure. and school activities so we don't get away as often right. as I would like to think but yeah. the tent's camper, always there to motivate me.
0: Are you a camper trailer guy? Or no a tent. tent. Oh, I tent. set up your own tent? Yeah yeah. yeah. Okay. And if you got, is it a whole glamping
1: experience? Yeah, we don't slum it. We don't slum it. They're, I think well, Sarah, my wife, has a has a part to play in the in the camping choices as right. well. So there are blow up mattresses. Okay. Um, I love cooking. Yeah. It's probably my, my, one of my passions as well. I, I find it very too. very relaxing, and I love the love all the social side of that. Right. So, so we we eat very well. Are you me.
0: one of these people that uh you cook the meal and then sort of cry back it and take it with you? Or sometimes, you... sometimes,
1: right. yeah, depending on where where we are. What I, you know, but if you go to. Um, Stratia, for example, you can drive back up to um, Amity or Point Lookout and go to a, go to a fish shop and actually yeah. get yourself some fresh seafood. So and a nice you don't need, to, and yeah, and a nice bakery. So you yeah. don't have to, you know, you don't have to take cryovac food. But if you're going somewhere that's remote, yeah, you've sure. got to be self-sufficient.
0: Yeah, I've been excited for Christmas. I'm buying myself uh, one of those wood smoke um, uh, slow cooker um, oh, barbecues. Right. Yeah, Where yeah. They use the little Wood pellets. Yes. have Different types of pellets, for different, different flavors, flavors of food, and mm. I'm very excited about. Oh, that. awesome, <laughs> awesome! Actually, I tell you what,
1: my wife got me. It was my birthday this week. Actually, earlier oh, this really week. Yeah. And um, oh, birthday. thank you. Um, and she she got me a. Uh, I love cooking paella at home. Oh, um, yeah. and I do all the, all the seafood and right. everything like that. Yeah. And I make my own chicken stock whenever we do a roast chicken. Okay. Always roast, broil the bones. So our freezer is just full of like right. turkey stock, chicken stock, prawn stock, uh-huh. all those, so all for things like risottos and paellas yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And um, I love doing that, but I've always, up until now, had quite a big, pa- one of these big paella pans. It's yeah. probably sort of 50 centimetres across or 60 right. centimetres across or something. But it's hard to do on the hop top because you can't get even heat. Yeah, sure. You can't get the, the rings aligned properly. So right. she got me one of these proper paella, like a stand with a, with a big gas mm-hmm. rings, like okay. the professional people yeah. do. So um, I haven't had a chance to use it yet, but I'll oh, uh, get that set up and I can I can do it out on the deck. So it be
0: pale for Christmas not
1: Something like that, yes. Oh, very good. <laughs> well, look,
0: Chris, uh, I really appreciate your time. And, yeah, you're uh, welcome. The day before you go on holidays, I'm sure you've got a lot of things to tidy up before you uh, head away. So uh, thanks again and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you very much thank you for listening to the arate podcast with richard Trix. if you'd like to accelerate your executive career journey richard invites you to join his ceo incubator community on linkedin just search for ceo incubator in linkedin groups and click on the ask to join button to apply we'll see you in the community the arate podcast is brought to you by the experts on air podcast network